Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Ephesians chapter 3, where we're going to be this morning, Ephesians chapter 3. Gospel sharing programs uh, and tracts and evangelism tools exist by the thousands. No doubt you have had some sort of experience with some of them in the past, perhaps, Uh, You may recognize things like the four spiritual laws, evangelism explosion, which was a huge gospel sharing tool, uh, sharing Jesus without fear. There's recently a track that the North American Mission Board has put out, um, three circles, which you may find, a little black and white pamphlet. Um, Some of these have been, there's there's thousands more like this, some of these have been really helpful, Uh, some of them have been maybe less helpful. But most of them are going to be focused on essentially the same thing. Sitting down with somebody, presenting the gospel to them in one way or another, and essentially, in the end, hoping to make a convert to Christianity, a new member of the body of Christ. But what if I told you that God also has a missional program. And that is the local church. The mission of the church is what we're going to be talking about this morning. Fulfilling the task to which we are appointed uniquely. Paul, in this passage in Ephesians, discusses his own missional strategy, why he's approaching missions the way he is, and what role the church is going to play in accomplishing God's task of evangelizing and making disciples. Let's read Ephesians 3, 1-21. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we pause to consider the words that you have spoken through the Apostle Paul. Would you please open our eyes and our minds that we may understand what he's saying? Open our hearts that we may understand what he's saying to us. And allow our bodies to go forth in obedience as we leave this place at the end. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're coming to the last sermon in this series on the church that I've been in for, uh, this makes eight weeks now total. And I want to take just a second to summarize some of the big concepts that we've talked about up to this point as we've looked at the DNA of the church. When I started this series, the sermon that text that I preached from was in the passage just prior to the one I just read. In Ephesians 2, 11-22 is what I, I preached from. And what I said then in the first week is that fundamental to our understanding of what the church does is understanding what the church is. We can't really understand what we do or really why we do it without understanding who we are. And I, I concluded in that sermon, based on Paul's words there to us in that passage, that the church is the people of God and beneficiaries of all God's covenant promises based on the restorative work accomplished by Christ Jesus. So let me say that again. The church is the people of God and beneficiaries of all God's covenant promises based on the restorative work accomplished by Jesus Christ. Now it sounds like a mouthful, and it sounds like it's really complex, but let's take a moment to just think about what is being said there. The church is the people of God. In other words, we have been purchased by God. We have been made and brought into His family. We've been made citizens of his kingdom. And we are beneficiaries of all his covenant promises. In other words, there is not one covenant promise that you could ever find made in the scriptures that doesn't belong to Jesus. Do you understand that? There's not one promise anywhere in scripture that could that has ever been made that doesn't belong to Jesus. And we, based on the work that Jesus has done, 
are beneficiaries of all that belongs to Jesus. In other words, he's not keeping all those covenant promises and the benefits of those covenant promises to himself. He's sharing those with us. And there's zero evidence in Scripture that Jesus withholds any of those covenant blessings from us. If we are part of his family, Christ gives all of those as blessings to us. So as Paul puts it, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. And so what we saw in Ephesians 2, 11-22, is that Christ has torn down the dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile, the separate groups of people. He made them one and brought them all into His body. And the Gentiles, who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, He says, who were strangers, exiles to the promises, you were strangers and aliens to God. He brought us near and made us all into one body, making us citizens of God's kingdom. And so that means, as Paul says in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So Jesus made us all one group, all under Christ, all inheriting all the blessings that he himself earned by his righteous life. Clear? It's what Christ has done. And Paul's laying that out for us. Now, what we also said the following week was that God has always created his people through his word. He's done that in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light. He formed His people out of the dust that He made by His spoken Word. But He also saved us through His Word. Through the preaching of His Word. He saved us. He awakened our heart to salvation. Now, what we have to understand is that He has taken it of His own volition to save sinful humanity. He didn't have to do that. He could have just wiped us off the face of the earth. He didn't have to save us, but He did. Last week, we found out the reason why He saved us. Our very purpose, what we are put here for, the reason that He saved His people from His sin is for His own glory. That we would worship Him. That's the reason He saved us. We talked about last week that you and I were created for His glory. That's the reason we were made. Was to live for God's glory. As a mirror is created to reflect the image of the one looking in it. God created us and made us in His image. And when He looks into us, His mirror... What he expects to see coming back to him is his own glorious nature. So then, as we have sinned and warped that nature into a funhouse mirror, God has put his spirit in us, his people, and now we reflect his nature and his attitude back to him. So then the church is a giant reflector of God's glory as we have in us the indwelling Holy Spirit. Tracking with me? Indwelling Holy Spirit is in here. It's reflecting God's 
own character, his own nature back to us. So he's gradually flattening out that mirror that has been warped by sin. All right. The passage that I just read from in Ephesians chapter 3 is obviously much longer and filled with a lot more content than we will address all this morning, obviously. But I wanted to read it all together so that we have the context of what Paul is saying. And then I want to hone in on a couple of verses in particular. Now, if you've read the book of Ephesians, then you probably know all too well that it's very neatly divided. The outline of Ephesians is very, very easy because the first three chapters are one half that he's talking about one thing and the last three chapters are another half. So it's divided almost right down the middle. And the first three chapters, Paul is dealing with doctrine. How you and I came to be saved. That's essentially what Paul is dealing with in those first three chapters. And and really what that salvation means and what it looks like. He's looking at it from all different sides. And then in the last three chapters, Paul goes on to explain what real difference that actually makes in our practical everyday living. So chapters four to six is now how do we live in light of the fact that we have been saved. So it's a very easy division. Well, we're in chapter 3 this morning, so that tells you a little bit about where we are in the book and what Paul is doing. He's explaining some finer points of doctrine. We know that first. But second, we're coming to the conclusion of his explanation of the doctrinal half of the book of Ephesians. And so Paul is going to then explain what the the salvation of the church, what his own salvation is meant to accomplish, what the church's mission really is, what his own mission really is in light of the fact that you have been saved. As we think about how missions fits into the DNA of the church, we cannot let go what we talked about last week, that the purpose of the church is to glorify, or you might even say worship, God. That is the purpose of the church, to glorify and worship God. We can't let that fall by the wayside. That's being carried over. This is part two of that sermon, if you will. Now, what is the mission of the church? John Piper opens his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, with a a perfect launching pad for us this morning. This is the opening statement of the book. He says this, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. So worship is the fuel and goal of missions. Hang on to that statement. Worship is the fuel and goal of missions. In other words, in missions, you're bringing people into the worship of God. That's your your goal. That's also what fuels you to keep going. So my hope is that in this passage, that we can keep that order straight. That our purpose is worship. And our function, what we're going to be doing 
is missions because our purpose is worship. There's three aspects of the mission of the church that I want us to see from Paul's own words to the church at Ephesus. The first is that the church is the mission. The church is the mission. I want you to pay close attention to what Paul says in verse 10. Because at first read, you're tempted to just uh, glance past it. Or if you reread it, it might sound a little weird to you. But look at what he says in verse 10 and pay really close attention to it. He says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So first, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. Now, what is this manifold wisdom of God that is made known? Well, if you look back to to verse 5, you look back just a few verses to verse 5, he says that he has, you might perceive his insight into the mystery of Christ. And then he explains what that mystery is in verse 6. He says, This mystery is, that's always important when they say that, you just kind of underline it, you know he's about to give a definition, okay? The mystery that I just talked about, the mystery of Christ, that's what this mystery is, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. That's what we didn't know until Jesus came. We didn't didn't understand this. Thought the Jews were the only ones that were going to inherit salvation. We thought the Jews were the only ones that were going to be saved. Turns out, nope. Jesus revealed the mystery. Surprise! God had hidden this. This is my plan to save the world. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. We've been spending all this time trying to separate from the Gentiles. Shocker of all shockers, they're members of the same body, wouldn't you know? This is the mystery that is revealed. And they're partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And as verse 9 makes clear in just a minute, Paul is bringing this light, uh, this mystery, if you will, To everyone. He's sharing it with everyone around the world. So he calls it a mystery that has been revealed. And he says that it is the wisdom of God. It is the salvation that has come to the world through Jesus Christ. That is the mystery. God has saved the world through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And as we talked about in the first sermon in this series, Christ has torn down that dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, and he's made one new man in the church. And what he's done there is not only reconciled us to each other, he has reconciled us to God. He has made peace between us and God. This is what Paul refers to as the wisdom of God. Only God could have done that. Only God could have known that was what he was going to do. No one could have predicted that he was going to do this. That he was actually going to save us. And remember last week, when it comes to God's plan of salvation, Paul says in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How inscrutable are His ways! No one can fathom the wisdom that is, that is God who, is, who has accomplished this. So the church, the redeemed people of God, have become a spectacle to the watching world. Think about what the church really is. Think about what you as a collective body really, is, really are to the world that's looking around at you. 
You're not just a spectacle, by the way, to everyday ordinary people. He says the whole created order is looking at you. Even the rulers and principalities and powers. That's not just demonic powers. That's all angelic beings. They're all looking on you and going, we didn't even know this. We didn't even know God was going to do this. Rulers and authorities, heavenly places look on. So, and the reason they look on is because, the, because God took, did a unique thing here. He took a sinful, reprobate people and he brought about his glory from them. He put his Holy Spirit within them. So in the church, God has taken this reprobate group of dead sinners who deserved his wrath and his condemnation. And he has justified them. And yet, in the process of justifying them, he has still maintained his own justice and righteousness. So that now, in the church, his very own spirit takes up residence inside these people. This is the angels and the demons are looking on the church and thinking, how in the world could he accomplish that? And then this group of people who have the spirit dwelling within them grow more and more in the likeness of Christ. That's a phenomenon that only God could have done. The very ones who cursed His name now live for His glory and have access to Him as sons. It's a marvel. But Paul doesn't just leave it there. In verses 14 to 19, he tells the church at Ephesus what he's praying for them and we can only assume every church in verse 16 he prays that the church of Ephesus is strengthened he says with power through his spirit I want you to be strengthened with power through his spirit that spirit that's dwelling within you then in 17 that Christ who dwells in your heart that it may lead to you being rooted and grounded in love and then he says in verse 19 that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Why do you think he lists all those things there? Why do you think he wants that for the church at Ephesus? He doesn't say, I want you to break the bounds. I want you to baptize 15,000 people this year. I want you to blow the banks open with all the money that's going to be flowing into the church. He doesn't say any of that. He says, I want you to grow the power of the Holy Spirit I want you to be rooted and grounded in love, and I want you to grow in the fullness of God. Why do you think he says that? Because the more the church grows to look like Christ, the more we reflect his glory like a mirror, like we were created to do, and the more we do that, the more of a spectacle the church becomes to the watching world, and the more glory the world gives to God in the process. It's not about conversion, straight up. It's, it's, no, no, no. He says, no, I want you to grow to look more like Christ. The conversions will take care of themselves if that's the case. So then he concludes in 21. He says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
The church is the missional strategy of God in every generation. The church is the mission. However, he's not saying merely everyone that gets together and calls themselves a church. He says specifically the ones whose who the Spirit indwells, who are growing more and more in the power of His Spirit, who are rooted and grounded in love. He's saying that not only is the church the mission, but that you fulfill the mission when you become a peculiar bunch of people who look like Jesus and strive to look more like Him every single day. In fact, we see in the book of Revelation, as he lists those churches, the ones who refuse to be rooted and grounded in love and refuse to grow more and more like Christ every day and who refuse to repent, Christ puts out of their commission. Here's why this matters. Because when you say in a church context the word missions, when you use that word, 99% of the people, I'm guessing, in the congregation are going to think of an event that takes place far and wide. An event that takes place way out there where I can never go. In the dark places of the world, that's where mission is. When you say go on mission, that's what I have in mind. Well, then naturally, what flows from that? Well, can you and I just go out there right now? Well, we have lives here in Tuscaloosa. We have jobs. We have families. We have obligations here. Missions is way out there. Here, I can't participate in that. So we come up with the only way we can conceive to participate in missions, and that is write a check. So then missions becomes for us in the pew. Check writing. Send money. That's how we participate in missions. And this is not to discount the work of evangelism that people do far and wide on the frontiers. That's necessary. Paul is doing that. But it is to say that what Paul is saying is that his own work on the frontiers culminates in You, the created body that is the church, coming together to worship God and continue this work of evangelism in these areas. The church is Jesus' plan. The church is the apostles' plan because in the church, the glory of God is not just reflected back to Him, it's reflected to the community around them. It's made visible to all of creation. Another reason why this is tremendously important is because if, as a church, we gave $10 billion, let's say every year, let's make it crazy, we gave $10 billion every single year to missionaries far and wide, 
But when you come into our assembly, we are filled with strife and conflict and animosity towards one another and gossip and slander and unrepentant sins of all sorts. We would not be in any way missional. You understand that? But we would instead be an abomination to the name of Christ. And let's look at the contrast. If a church couldn't possibly give away one dollar, everybody in the church was dirt poor. No one had uh, two nickels to rub together. And we had zero dollars to our name and had zero dollars to give away. And yet, when you came into our assembly, we were a peculiar lot who invites the nations to look into something better, into a society of people who are redeemed by Christ and who are growing in the knowledge of God and who are rooted and grounded in love toward one another and toward God and are, being, and are, and are continually in the process of telling the gospel to others and making disciples. That church would be fulfilling the Great Commission without one dollar spent. The mission of Christ is to build his body. That's his mission. That's what he's doing. The church is the mission. Now, what's the church's mission? So if the mission of Christ is the church to build the body, then what's our mission every day? And that is the second point. The church's mission is to share the gospel with everyone. Pretty simple, right? To share the gospel with everyone. Look at what Paul says. Uh, the mission is in the last part of verse, of, of verse 8 and then the rest of verse 9. Look at what he says. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now sometimes in the church, and this is broadly speaking, not simply our own congregation, but in the church broadly speaking, sometimes in the church we seem to get confused as to what the actual missional strategy really is. And you'll see this with, with many people uh, when you ask them what is sharing the gospel, you will, you will hear this, this kind of, I think it's this, I think it's this. It's, it's, we seem to be confused about it. And so you get different perspectives on what it means to share the gospel. And we get different missional strategies that involve things like digging wells and building hospitals and giving clothing and food, and the list goes on to a number of other things. And those are all important things. But hear me, they are insufficient means of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ to everyone. Those are important, but they're insufficient. Not unnecessary, insufficient for preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul sees his job very clearly, and it's true of every Christian, bringing to light for everyone what is the plan of the salvation from God through Christ who created all things. That's the mission. Do you know that you were created by an almighty God and you were created for his glory? Do you know that you have sinned and fallen short 
of his glory. And God, who is eternally righteous and who is eternally just, cannot let sin go unpunished and yet be righteous and just. So he has to punish it. And because your sin is particularly unfathomable, my sin too, I'm including me in that, because it's particularly unfathomable and you sinned against an infinitely holy God, we deserve a punishment of infinite severity. Imagine if you came up and slapped me, probably not much would happen to you. I'm going to be honest with you. Don't need anybody to get any ideas. I'm just saying. If you went up and slapped a president or a king, you'd be in jail if you were lucky. Imagine if you slapped an infinitely holy God. The severity goes up with the quality of the person you're offending. So we deserve infinite, uh, a punishment of infinite severity. But knowing that you could never pay for your sin, God sent His only Son, fully God, fully man, in the person of Jesus Christ to live a perfect life and yet die in your place and in my place and there on the cross, suffer God's wrath, the punishment stored up for you. He suffered on the cross. He was buried. He was physically dead. And on the third day, he rose from the dead bodily. And now, if you submit to him as Lord... And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved from the wrath to come that's stored up for those that don't believe. Now, you can share your shoes, and you should. You can share your water, and you should. But if you don't share what I just said, you're not sharing the gospel. But that's not to say that those things are bad and sometimes necessary in order to share the gospel. Those things can be very good. I just don't want you to get them confused as to what sharing the gospel actually is. Let's understand those things for what they actually are. They are blessings of citizenship in the kingdom of God. But they are not citizenship in the kingdom of God. You understand that? What God has done in making you part of His kingdom is He has put His Spirit within you. And, in, and as such, he has, he has made and is making you more like Christ every single day. So you are growing in your attitudes and affections to be more like Christ every single day. And it's a very slow process, I grant you. Every time I look in the mirror, I realize how slow that process really is. But he's slowly making you more like Christ in every way. So what does that mean then? Well, you're going to grow in compassion toward the poor and disenfranchised. You're going to grow in concern for orphans and widows. You're going to grow in your desire to provide for them the things necessary for life. And because His Spirit dwells within you, you're also going to start pushing away from some things. You're going to start pushing away from your own attraction to wealth. 
your own desire to hang on to material goods. You're going to start loosening your grip on some of those things. Well, when you put those two things together, the fruit of God's Spirit living within you is bestowing blessings on people that you come in contact with. Because you care less for these things and you want them to have all the things that they need. But that's what I'm saying. These are fruits of the Spirit that's living within you. And it's not citizenship that's being transferred to this person or that they're being asked to come into the kingdom. So let me illustrate this point for just a second. It's no secret that America is is the most prosperous country that's ever existed. The poor here are are often wealthier than the rest of the world's poor for sure, and in some cases are wealthier than than even uh, everyday ordinary people in in other countries. Um, And certainly here you you, you have opportunity to make a life for yourself, certainly that doesn't exist in many other places around the world. So here in America, we are in every way counted as more prosperous than anywhere else in the rest of the world. So let's imagine for just a second that you're on a trip with your family and you're going to Belgrade, Serbia, and you're walking around the streets of Belgrade, Serbia, which has a 40% unemployment rate. All right? Just think about that for a second. 40% unemployment rate. How does that work? Turns out the last dying wish of communism was to give them incredible unemployment. Is essentially what's happened. And so many there are poor. Many there have no real means of supporting themselves. And as you're walking around the streets, you and your family come across one such person who is desperately poor and begging for spare change, some Serbian dinar, which is their currency. You reach into your pocket, and you don't have Serbian dinar. You have actually just a crisp $20 bill from the U.S. of A. And you hand that to this person. Now, you may not find that $20 is that hard to come by for you, but for a person in Serbia, in that level of poverty, $20 can go quite a long way and feed them, depending on how they spend it, for several days at the very least. Now, it would be foolish for you to walk away from that interaction and think that you have given this person the keys to becoming a citizen of the United States. You have not. You have given them enough to last for a short while, but you have not transferred their citizenship to another country. Now, in order to do that, the person will actually have to die to Serbian citizenship and swear an oath of allegiance to American citizenship. Similarly, our mission is not merely to share the blessings of the kingdom. That is necessary. But it's not merely to share the blessings of the kingdom of God in material goods of which we are growing more willing to turn loose. But it is primarily to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, which is salvation that can be had in Christ alone through citizenship in His kingdom, which involves death to a life of sin and pledging fealty to Jesus as Lord. That's the only way you can be saved. See, what does it take for a church to really be missional? Well, first, we have to be rooted and grounded in love and growing in that. That's clear. That's abundantly clear. 
But second, we have to actually preach the gospel. That's also important. That's what it means to be missional as a church. Now, of course, there's going to be opportunities in the community of Tuscaloosa and Northport to share material goods with the, with the city because we love the city and we're, we're built here. In fact, we regularly, as a small example, give peanut butter to the Christian Ministry Center. We take donations of food of all kinds, and we take them down to their Christian Ministry Center. It helps them a great deal. We take so much peanut butter down there that Tom actually became known as the peanut butter man when he walks in. He loves that nickname, by the way. You can call him that anytime you want to. <laughs> peanut butter man, every time he walks in. And, I, and, and granted, that's a small effort, I realize, and I'm quite positive that as we go in the years to come, we will engage in many more things like this and much bigger things as we go in the years to come. But don't get it confused with our commission of preaching the reconciliation offered through Christ alone. Now, individually, for you, that also means a great deal. It means that you can't write a check big enough to cover your obligation to the Great Commission. You can't write a number big enough that would assuage your own conscience in obedience to the command of Jesus, go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. You cannot write a check big enough. This is where we as churches are. We feel as though to be a missional church, that means we have to give a portion of our money to people that are out there sharing the gospel. But personally, on the back end, we care little in our daily lives for actually sharing the gospel. If we're not telling unbelievers the good news of Jesus Christ, or we're not teaching others to obey all that He has commanded of us, how could we possibly call ourselves missional? That is the Great Commission. It's literally right there. Now, third, the accelerant of missions is understanding the grace given to you. The accelerant of missions is understanding the grace given to you. Look at what Paul says in verses 7 and 8. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Piper said, remember the quote, Piper said, worship is the fuel and goal of missions. I think that's, I think that's right. We were created to reflect God's glory, to worship Him. And in the church, He has created a people who, who seek to worship Him and reflect His glory. And, the, and missions is the process whereby the church brings other people into the worship of God. But if worship is the fuel and the goal, the destination, then understanding your own salvation 
Understanding the grace given to you in your own salvation is the gas pedal of missions. Taking the fuel from the tank to the engine. It's the gas pedal. Brothers and sisters, as you engage more in the worship of God, as you grow more in your understanding of how you came to be saved, not because of how good you are, but because of how God chose to save you, because of His abundant mercy and grace that He showed to you, as you come more and more to comprehend, as Paul says, what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, as you are filled more and more with the fullness of God, the Spirit that He has put within you starts to push on the gas pedal. You become more enthralled with worshiping Him. With gathering together with brothers and sisters in the body. You start to bicker less with others and you seek more to live at peace with one another. You grow, more, you grow in radical forgiveness toward those that have offended you. To the point where you can radically forgive somebody who's done you great harm. And you seek to outdo one another with honor as you live with your brothers and sisters. And as you do that, the church becomes a very peculiar place for the outside world. A place filled with weirdos. How do you do that? How do you become that person? And then as you meet people, evangelism is no longer about really trying to win an argument. It's not really even about trying to persuade someone over to your own opinion. But rather to truly love them by telling them how they can be saved. And giving an account for the hope that is within you. You understand that as Peter's words, give an account for the hope that is within you. The anticipation is that people would look at you and sense that there's something different about you. That's his anticipation that the church would be such a peculiar lot that people are going to look at them and go, what is going on in there? And you're able to give an account for the hope that is within you. Missions becomes a very simple and natural process. Yet we come Sunday and we sing praises to the Lord. We pray, we read scripture. We might even shed a tear or two and then we wonder why this doesn't translate into me sharing the gospel. And so we come back to solutions. We start brainstorming. We think of all kinds of different solutions that we might apply to this and fix this problem. And so we begin doing evangelism training. Let's come together and let's grab all the answers we could possibly have to all the questions that might be asked of us so that I'm never stumped. I don't ever want to be stumped. And then give me all the nice little quippy sayings that I can figure out so that I might cleverly respond to someone to trap them in their own arguments. In reality, what helps us most in evangelism is compassion more than anything. It's compassion. It's being able to sing with honesty 
The words in that famous hymn by John Newton, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Do you believe that in spite of your wretchedness, His grace was amazing and saved you from an eternity in hell? Paul says, though I am the very least of all the saints, in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says a similar thing. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? He says, because I persecuted the church of God. That's why. Paul's wrestling with his own wretchedness and says, I'm not even worthy to be doing this. But I was saved. Evangelism to Paul is simply one beggar showing another beggar where to find bread. That's it. It's an announcement of news. It's great news. But do you see it as great news? The evangelism training that we need in our churches is a deeper appreciation for our own inherent wretchedness and God's abundant mercy and grace. The enemy of evangelism is thinking that salvation, the salvation given to us by God, is something that we deserved. It will kill evangelism every time. So I want to connect these three points very quickly for us as we think about what they mean to you as an individual member of the body and to us collectively as a church body. I said first that the church is the mission. Christ, that's what Christ established. He established a local body of believers. And if he, if he did that, if that's true, then the health of our church actually matters. It matters. And I'm talking health from top to bottom. Everything from the way we are structured from a leadership perspective, it actually matters. It matters a great deal. Because we're living in obedience to His Word. Our practice of church membership and church discipline that we have talked about in this series, it actually matters. And I realize some of those, especially in our congregation, are contentious topics. But it it doesn't matter. If the Word bears them out, if that's Christ's will for the church, then it actually matters. And our obedience to it actually matters. Our service to the community of Tuscaloosa and Northport actually matters. But also individually, your lives matter. Every conversation that you have matters. Every shred of gossip that exists in our members actually matters. Every quarrel that you have with another person in this room or outside of this room matters. Every snarky comment at members' meetings matters. Literally everything that comes out of our mouth matters. Every action matters. Jesus tells us himself that we will give an account for every careless word. It all, he says, matters. We are to be a community of peculiar people who have the Spirit of God within us, who come together to worship the one true and living God. And everything we do, every single thing we do, either contributes positively or negatively to the name of Jesus in the minds of our brothers and sisters and in the minds of the world watching us. The local church is Jesus' evangelism program. 
And everything we do matters since we are the salt of the earth. But then second I said, it, the church's mission is to share the gospel with everyone. And if that's true, then our missional focus doesn't necessarily have to be all over the globe. You don't have to go to the farthest reaches of the world to share the gospel or for us to be missional. There's nothing wrong with those things. You don't have to do that to be missional. We have thousands upon thousands of people in this city who desperately need the gospel. And again, that's not to disparage long-distance trips. We will take more of those in the future, I am sure. But we can easily discern what is the will of God for our congregation, and it's by the location in our name, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. He has put us here for a reason, and that is to increase the worship of His name in this city and the surrounding areas. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Well, where do we start? Lay out the program, Michael. Let's go. I'm ready to do this. Where do we start? Okay, you might want to take notes on this because it's going to get complicated, okay? First, share the gospel with people who don't believe it. That's first. The end is when we have shared the gospel with everyone and they all believe it. That's the end. Or Jesus comes back, whichever happens first. In the middle, we share the gospel with people who don't believe the gospel. It's complicated, I know. But that is the mission. We share the gospel and we make disciples. It's simple. He gave us a very simple task. But then how do we take it from here's who we are as a church and I know what our goal is. How do we take it and, and go? How do we take it and really drive forward? How do, how do I move to that next step? Well, if it's true that the accelerant of missions is understanding the grace given to you, then the time we spend in the study of His Word is vital to the life of the church and to the mission of the church. We are a people created by His Word. We are continually to be creatures of His Word. We live by those very words. The Scriptures testify to the truth of God's person and work, and the Scriptures tell us rightly that we are His people. And only the Scriptures are breathed out by God and are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be equipped and complete for every good work, only the Scriptures, when we read them, do we come to truly understand the grace given to us. And that is the accelerant to missions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that in our assembly, your spirit be on us in a peculiar way. That as you grow us and mature us in your word, that we would desire to give an account for the hope that is within us to the people around us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.